In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farjum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you for joining us once again after a little bit of a break on our Life, the Islamic Answer series, in which we're trying to study and understand and extract the principles of Islamic living from the original sources, from the teachings of Ahlul Bayt and the Islamic uh, verses of the Holy Quran. As you will remember in this theme about knowledge, we began by underlining the importance of rationality, knowledge, and reason in Islam. And we said the alternative, namely foolishness and ignorance, which are the lack of rationality, the lack of wisdom, the lack of knowledge, are not alternatives, are not viable options in our religion. To become someone who gives importance to knowledge is not a luxury in our religion. It's not a nice to have. It's not optional. The only difference is how much of it, how much of the knowledge, how much of the rationality, how much of the wisdom do you consider to be satisfactory? Do you consider to be sufficient for you, for your role, for your duty, for your circumstances? But whether you gain knowledge or not is not an option. And that we established very clearly because otherwise we fall on the category of ignorance and foolishness, of jahl. And we saw that our religion does not accept jahl as an option. The next phase then becomes we must start acting to acquire knowledge and living our lives based on rationality and wisdom and good judgment and knowledge. So before we engage in the specific activities of becoming a learner, we had to make sure that we understand the two conditions so that no matter what we do afterwards, if those two conditions are met, then at least we know that we have secured the foundations that our knowledge and our knowledge activities, our knowledge seeking, the use of knowledge, the path on moving towards rationality, all of that meets the criteria that it is Islamic, that this, this is exactly what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from us. And we said the two conditions that have to be met is that the knowledge and all activities related to it have to lead to action it cannot just remain at the level of gathering of information. It has to translate into action. In other words, the manner in which we conduct ourselves in the world has to change. There has to be a before and after of the knowledge that we have acquired, of the rationality that we are applying and exercising. That's one. And two, the second condition is that it is based on sincere intentions that we are doing this truly 
for the reasons that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to do this and not anything else. The more we can meet these two conditions, the more everything we're doing can be considered to be Islamic. Whether you do a little bit of it or you do a lot of it. Whether you do this for one year of your life or the next seven years of your life. This is going to be Islamic. This is Islamic knowledge, Islamic action, if it is meeting these two conditions. Now that this is understood, we can start moving concretely towards becoming the seekers of knowledge. And so we spent a little bit of time understanding what it means to become a seeker of knowledge, the importance of seeking knowledge in Islam, the ingredients for effective learning according to Islamic teachings. And we talked about things that are a little bit more spiritual, things that are a little bit more abstract, as well as things that are very practical, including time management and making sure you don't eat too much and you start early in the day and you take care of your health and so on and so forth, even to the details of how seatings should be organized Islamically if you are to engage in learning in an Islamic way, right? So we spoke about all of that and this for us means that we understand the importance that our religion has given to becoming a learner to the point where it has gone out of its way to provide these types of details so that it leaves nothing to chance so that you are maximizing every effort you're putting in you're optimizing it you're gaining the greatest bang for the buck for every minute you're putting into learning so that nothing is wasted and the learning is as effective as it can be that once it's understood we understood the ingredients of effective learning in Islam we talked about the manners of the learner one and we also talked about the merits meaning in the eyes of God what does it mean for someone to be a learner what types of rewards does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promise to the person who is now a learner you don't have the knowledge yet you're now on the path to acquiring the knowledge. And we saw that this puts you in a completely different category. Just your intent to become a learner. Your intent that I'm now going to dedicate time, effort, money, whatever it may be, in order to learn. So that I may act and so that my intentions become sincere. If you do that, then this puts you in a completely different category. You and I see people the way we do. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not look at us this way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now looking at you as someone who is a knowledge seeker. So now you fall in a different category. Your rewards are different as you will remember. When we were done with that topic, we said now that that is done. Practically speaking, we need to start moving towards understanding who the teacher is because we have to choose a teacher to learn. And also... The fact that you have now begun your journey to become a learner means that you are somewhere on the scale of being a teacher, of carrying knowledge, of being responsible for the knowledge that you carry, of understanding that there are duties, there are responsibilities associated with the knowledge that you carry. The moment you know that knowledge comes with a responsibility. 
So on the one side, we want to understand what it means to be a teacher or a scholar in Islam, a alim, a carrier of knowledge, so that we find them and we follow them and we learn from them. And we also want to do that because this is the path that we're, we are aiming to walk. This has to be me. Every characteristic about the scholar, every characteristic about the teacher has to be a characteristic about me that I have to aspire to become, that I have to try to apply myself, on myself, for myself, not about others. Yes, it's important about others so that I find them and learn from them. But it's really about me, that I become this person that I am describing or that the teachings are describing as being. This is someone who carries knowledge. This is how they conduct themselves. So we began this whole discussion about the teacher first by saying, who is the real teacher? And in short, we said it is the person that God appoints as a teacher, that God appoints as a scholar. That's a true teacher. And everyone else is only a teacher to the extent that they match this person and their teachings or they point towards them. As much as you can point back to a safe, guaranteed source of knowledge, you are a scholar. The rest, the rest is people like you and I coming up with opinions and comments and thoughts and reflections. But first, before we get there, we want to secure the information, the knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to know. So we are going back to, if we have access to, the infallible. We're going back to the messenger. We're going back to a prophet. We're going back to an imam. That's a true teacher. What about the others? Are there true teachers? Are there true scholars other than the infallible? We said to the extent that what they're teaching matches. Yes. So that's what we're looking for. And that's what we're trying to become. Which also already forces a certain, they call it a methodology. It's going to force me to think in a certain way, to approach knowledge in a certain way, if I ex agree with this. It means that I can't just come up with my own theories about stuff. I have to start by looking at what the Qur'an says, and what Ahl al-Bayt have said, before I come up with my own theory about politics or economy or culture or history. Have they said anything about it, or have they left it completely to me? If they have, great. I have complete freedom. If they haven't, I need to go back. Before I say this is Islamic, this is my Islamic theory, I have to establish that this is actually aligned with those teachings. The second point, we establish the importance of choosing the right teacher. And we said it goes so much beyond just acquiring information from this person. This person is going to influence the way we think and how we behave a lot more than we are conscious they are influencing us. As much as the food that you eat is going to make you up, make up who you are, affect you the same way, the information that you're consuming, the knowledge that you're consuming is going to affect you and make you the person that you are. And then we started to talk about some of the characteristics of the teacher. And so here we said because we can't keep repeating a lot of the same information, we just say it once at the beginning so that we keep it in mind. For each one of these 
teachings, Islamic teachings about the characteristics of the teacher, we're going to see that it could be understood as simply a characteristic, like a trait. Trait A, trait B, trait C. It could also be understood as a duty. To the extent that someone is performing their duties as a teacher, they're performing their responsibilities as a scholar, those same things are actually their characteristics. I may say a teacher has to be someone who knows how to communicate, or I can say one of the duties of the teacher is to communicate effectively. Right? So we can look at it from different angles, but it's really the same thing. And again, we can be focused on others for all of these characteristics, but we should also never forget that we're tracing the path. We're building the foundation for the road we're going to take. These are the steps we're going to follow. It's not only about others, it's about myself. This is the road I'm going to take as a learner, as a scholar. It means that I have to become a teacher. I have to teach someone. You may be teaching your family members. You may be teaching your children. You may be teaching your friend, your neighbor, your colleague. Or you may be teaching a community or a society. It doesn't matter. Each of us is now going to carry a knowledge that comes with a duty, that comes with a responsibility. Some of the characteristics that we looked at. First, we can start by the negative ones. Who to avoid? And we went through a number of them. Avoid to the extent possible. And of course, this is in all these cases when you have the option. Sometimes you seek knowledge and you can only find it with people who don't match this description. Do you let go of the knowledge? No, you go seek it wherever you find it. But if you have the option, if you have the choice, don't forget that this person is going to influence you beyond just the information. So you're looking for someone who does not lack spirituality. They have to have a good dose of spirituality. They understand that the purpose behind the knowledge is not data. It's not how many megs of data you, you memorize. It's the spirituality that is generated from the knowledge you get. And you don't need a lot of knowledge to start generating spirituality. It's not about quantity. So to avoid the person who lacks spirituality. Those who seem to only be spreading empty talk. They behave in a way that seems to be contradictory to what they teach. Which could say that they don't believe what they're teaching. They can't stand behind it. They might be doing it for the wrong reasons. They are lacking the discipline, the strength to actually live by the principles and teachings that they talk about. They don't really know what they're talking about. They're repeating information. They're not repeating experience. A third point we mentioned. Someone who seeks to be using religion as an instrument, as a tool. It's not really about guidance and spirituality and the light in the heart. Religion is being used just like you use anything else for popularity, for worldly gain, for whatever it may be. Those who seem to be lacking judgment, depth of knowledge, depth of insight, 
When they look at things, they don't seem to be able to go beyond the superficial way of understanding things. They don't seem to be able to connect the dots, to read the future, to understand how things may connect behind the scenes. So there's a lack of depth, there's a lack of judgment, there's a lack of wisdom. And that's always a point we have to emphasize, especially when we study the teachings of Ahl al-Bayt. The Holy Quran and Ahl al-Bayt have depths. You're looking for someone who teaches you how to go to those depths, how to read something in two different ways and three different ways and four different ways and take it as something that seems to be theoretical and abstract and bring it back to your life so that it becomes a principle. You live by this principle. This requires an insight. This requires depth, right? It requires a reflection. It doesn't come from a superficial reading, a superficial understanding and a repetition of words. Low level of self-restraint and discipline. You're looking for someone who shows discipline because you want to be disciplined. You want your discipline to constantly be going up. Discipline means self-control. You want someone that will teach you. Right now, you know, if I'm good and I'm lucky, I perform my 30 days of fast in the year. I want someone to encourage me to fast much more in the year. Why is it limited to 30 days? The Holy Prophet fasted three months. At least three months. And he fasted a lot more days during the year. The imams fasted a lot more days during the year. Why is my fast limited to this? Why is the only thing that I may give maybe some zakah, maybe some khumus, and it's limited to that? Do I give sadaqah? Do I help the poor? Do I do anything with my wealth? I want someone to remind me of that. Someone to remind me of a discipline on a daily basis. What do they do? I want to see that so that it inspires me. And so there are things that are very material and they not, may not seem to be religiously related, but at least there's discipline behind them. But we have plenty of discipline in terms of religion too. You want someone to show you that they're disciplined religiously. And this is what really matters. Are they disciplined religiously? How much taqwa do they have? How much do they stay away from haram? Do they come close to it but avoid it on the limit or do they stay far away from it? This is discipline. Are they tempted? To what extent are you tempted? This is discipline. We want someone to have a high level of discipline. That's who I want to follow. That's my guide. If my guide is someone who's already on the edge, I'm not going to match that. I want someone to be so much ahead, so far in their self-control and self-discipline that it affects me properly, positively. Excessive interest in material gains. Life is not about this life. It's fine to live comfortably, even in luxuries in this life. But understand that this is not the point. How much of your energy, of your focus, of your time, of your money, of your being is consumed with world, worldly things, worldly gains? You want someone who shows you that the afterlife is a priority. It occupies a space in their life. There's a, the, a part of their life that's dedicated to the afterlife. You can tell that by money, by time, by effort, by energy. You can tell that. You want someone who is not only about worldly gains. Everybody is about worldly gains. We're looking for the exception. This is what the Holy Quran says. The majority of people are living the life of this world. They know nothing but the appearances of this world. We're looking for the person who goes 
a little bit beyond, who understands the purpose is not this world. If you truly understand that the purpose is not this world, then it has to show in your conduct. I have to be able to see some of that in your life. If you live in the same way, you and the person who doesn't even believe in an afterlife, and both of you live the same way, how do I know that you care about the afterlife? What's the difference in conduct? What's the difference? It has to show. And then finally, we also mentioned, based on the teachings, that we're also looking for someone who's actually an effective teacher. They have competence teaching. They know how to communicate. They know how to present, present arguments. They know how to take something abstract and complicated and present it in a convincing way, in a way that everybody is going to understand that is suited for their audience. They understand where the weaknesses are, where the strengths are in arguments. They choose the right argument, the right point, the right example. This is all part of the competence of teaching. And we saw multiple hadith from Ahlul Bayt that say go for those people. Go for the person who understands the arts of thinking, the arts of communicating and presenting. Because sometimes someone may be full of spirituality, full of knowledge, but they don't present the information properly. And so this may not be that great. As a learner, this is going to be a waste of time. It may generate more doubts and more questions than knowledge. You want someone who effectively presents the information to you so that you can take it and go do something with it. And it's presenting to you in a way that matches your needs on the other side. So this is what was to avoid. What did we cover until now? We've been off for a few weeks, so I'm doing a recap. What did we cover in terms of the desirable characteristics? Each one of the points we're talking about, we had a whole number of hadith behind them, right? Someone who has spiritual, spiritual discipline, someone who has an ability to guide others, someone who is a stabilizing force for your faith, for your belief, not someone who just spreads doubts and questions and makes you weaker in your belief. Everything that you believe in, that you thought you believed in, the little that you thought you believed in, is now on shaky grounds. No, you need to solidify your faith first. You need to be closer to God as a result, not further away. Closer to the truth, not further away. That's what you're looking for. Someone who leads by example. Someone who seems to be preoccupied with death and after death, not just this life, as we said. Someone who has the right sources of knowledge. They know how to prioritize the teachings of the Holy Quran, the teachings of Ahl al-Bayt before I go see, you know, what so-and-so thinker, what so-and-so author, what so-and-so influencer has said about something. Okay, and then we saw these terms that started to appear in some of the hadith. One of them being that they are a good custodian. They're a trustee. They have amana. They're reliable. They can be trusted. They have been entrusted with knowledge and they know how to take care of it. They know what to do with that knowledge. They know how to preserve it. They know how to grow it. They know how to pass it on. They know how to multiply it. And you feel that there is a genuine concern around that. 
We talked about the ability to guide. We said here, in terms of details, we want someone who has a humble relationship with knowledge. Someone who doesn't feel arrogant to the point where they seem to feel like they already know what there is to know about a topic. There's nothing else to learn here. I already know everything about it. No, we're looking for the opposite. Someone who is always open-minded, ready to learn, ready to recognize mistakes. Say here, we made a mistake, we have to go back and fix it. That is not always easy to do. Someone who is solid in their faith. Someone who never tires, the ahadith were saying, never tires of learning. Right? Imam Ali salam, when he talks, he gave a lot of descriptions. One of them when he says, manhuman. Right? Al-manhum is the person who, there is no end to their hunger. He says there are two such people. Two types of manhum. People without an end to their hunger. Talibu mal wa talibu ilm. The seeker of wealth and the seeker of knowledge. If this is a true seeker of wealth, they'll never be satisfied, no matter how much wealth they gain. And if they are a true seeker of knowledge, no matter how much knowledge they get, they'll never be satisfied. This is what we're looking for. One of them is, of course, really good, and the other is really bad. We're looking for the person who has a deeper insight. We went through the entire letter of Imam Ali salam. We said the letter 31 in which the point was really when the imam is talking to one of his sons, telling them, never feel like you have known everything there is to know about a topic, as though there is nothing that anyone can teach you anymore. This was the mistake of previous nations. They got arrogant. They closed the door of learning. That's one way to put the entire experience of previous nations, which led to their annihilation and their divine punishment. We talked about, and this was a whole subtopic, we talked about the importance of spreading the knowledge that you have, and we're going to come back to this point. But we saw some of the worst things that someone who has knowledge can do is to keep that knowledge, and not to share it, not to present it, to keep it hidden. And we saw multiple ahadith, especially the longer one, if you will remember, the degrees or the ranks of hellfire, where the imam is talking about matching up every layer of hellfire with a type of scholar who is either instrumentalizing, using knowledge as an instrument, using religious knowledge as an instrument for something else, for a worldly gain, or they refuse to share it. And so this was something to be avoided. We're not looking for the person who keeps the knowledge. What good is the knowledge kept in your mind and in your heart? That knowledge needs to come out to affect you and to affect others. And then, so we went through the categories of the evil scholars. I'm not going to go through all of that. The other heading was the importance of the balanced approach. We're looking for the scholar who knows how to balance, to create a mood or an attitude in the learner that is balanced between fear and hope. On the one side, you want to be fearful of God. You want to remember your sins. You want to be afraid, not sure whether Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive or not. While at the same time, on the other side, know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you are sincere, 
when you show him that you are sincere, he forgives. But not to the point where this becomes a mockery. Where it doesn't mean anything to say, I made a sin and I, I'll ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive me and he'll forgive me. The month of Ramadan will come and I'll seek God, God's repentance then. Muharram will come and I'll cry for Imam al-Hussein and Allah will forgive my sins. When I get older, I will go to Hajj and Allah will wipe my slate clean. This is not how it works. You know that this is haram and you're still going to engage without regret, without fear from God. That's an issue. You need the scholar to remind you that this is not how forgiveness works. Forgiveness is, as the Holy Quran says, إِنَّمَا التَّوْبَةُ عَلَى اللَّهِ لِلَّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ السُّوءَ Right? Those who perform the sin not knowing, unknowingly. It's a moment of weakness. It's a moment of forgetfulness. Then you perform the sin. It's very different than I know. I know that God is watching me and I know that this is haram and I still engage. That's a lot more dangerous. So you need someone to remind you that while Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is forgiving, you need to be afraid of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His punishment and His wrath and His anger and His displeasure. It has repercussions in this world and repercussions in the afterlife. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, billah, Allah is not a joke. So that you confront Him openly with your sins. You're waging a war, the Holy Quran says. Those are the ones who want to wage a war against God. No, none of us want to engage in a war against God. Who are we and what are we to engage in a war against God? So this is what you need, that scholar to present that balanced approach between fear and hope. Remember the love and mercy and compassion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and remember His anger and fear and, and, and punishment and displeasure. You want to be balanced between the two. And we saw how the ahadith are warning against those who make people lean too much on one side or too much on the other. Those who only talk about hellfire and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's punishment make people turn away from religion because they feel that no matter what I do, Allah will never forgive me. It's too late for me. So I despair, which is an even greater sin. As though I and my sins are greater than God's compassion. As though God is incapable of forgiving me. That's why this is a grave sin, a cardinal sin. And on the other side, the other extreme, is those who take it so easy that the very notion of forgiveness is becoming a joke. It doesn't hold any true meaning anymore. The notion of real regret, when you intend, when you tell Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I'm repenting to you, forgive me, you're doing it with a true intention that I will do everything I can never to repeat it. When you do it that way, it means that there is real regret. Even if you were to slip up later, at least there was regret when you sought, when you sought uh, repentance and forgiveness. And you may slip up again. And it may happen. Not an issue. You ask forgiveness again and again and again. But you're sincere. You're not doing it to wage a war as the Holy Quran we said. said. You're doing it because you recognize it was a moment of weakness. It's, it was a moment of you lost consciousness. You lost your awareness. You lost your compass. You need to be brought back. And this is why we need religious gatherings. We need Quran. We need prayer. We need these constant reminders which bring you back constantly. 
This is how it's meant to be. This is how religion is designed. Allah knows we're going to slip up. So you need that constant reminder, that balanced approach. And this is one of the main objectives of learning religion. This is a fine balancing act. In some of our narrations, we didn't talk about all of that. That's a whole topic on its own. In some of our narrations, when they talk about the perfect believer, they say the perfect believer is the one whose heart is perfectly in the middle between fear and hope. Which means that this is not an easy thing to do and perhaps even more difficult, not an easy thing to teach. You first have to acquire it for yourself or try to understand it for yourself so that you can present it. It's not easy. If you understand that this is something you can aspire to as a perfect believer, to be perfectly balanced between fearing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and hoping and loving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, both at the same time. In any case, the other topic we talked about was to follow those people who seem to understand the needs of the time. And the way this was presented, it was very deep and we presented it very quickly and it requires much, much discussion. We don't have time for it. We just put it there and move. We're moving. But I think enough of it is sufficiently beneficial, inshallah. This is the idea that was presented in a number of narrations when the imams were especially talking about the end of times. The role of scholars in the end of times. Later, in the later chapters of human history. If you will remember, the imams were saying the true scholars among our followers are going to be the ones who sit on the front lines and they are able to recognize the points of weakness from which Satan and his demons can come in. They can recognize, given the times, they can recognize from where the issues are coming in. What is going to affect people's minds? What is going to affect people's hearts? They are sitting there protecting people. People don't know. But that's the role that they're playing. That's the function they're per- How do you perform that function? It means you have such an understanding of the times of the circumstances, culturally, socially, politically, that you are able to read all of this and identify. This is the weakness. This is where the danger comes from. Here, there is a danger, but people are okay. They can handle this. This one, they're going to have trouble with. If I have limited resources, this is where I'm going to put them. And this is how I'm going to counter this, the hadith were very clear in all of this. You will remember the metaphors that we saw in a number of hadith. And in a lot of this, the imams in a lot of the hadith were saying, and you bring us back, you, those are the people who bring our, the imams were saying in the hadith, they bring our orphans back to their imam, if you will remember. In other words, the followers of the imams. The imams say when people are not attached to their imam, when the imam is not there between them, these are orphans. You are just like an orphan if you don't have access to your imam. And so if you go in the ahadith of Ahlul Bayt, you will often see this word. They're not talking about the orphan. As many ahadith as we have about socially, the orphan, the person who loses their parents. We have as many ahadith that talk about the orphans. 
Yetim ehl bayt Aytamu ehl bayt Who are they? They're the people who are disconnected from their imam. You no longer have access to your imam, to your source. Who's going to protect you during that time? Who's going to be your guardian during that time? Just like the orphan's going to need a guardian here. A scholar. This is the role of the scholar. And so, is it this person that you're identifying as your teacher, as your scholar? Are they performing that role? Do they understand this duty? Do they know how to perform this duty? That's what we're looking for. This is a true scholar. They're able to read and take care of the followers of Ahl al-Bayt. To bring them back to the Imam. To connect them. To make their faith stronger. To protect them against the attacks, against the weaknesses, against the questions and doubts and problems that may arise spiritually and in their faith. Okay, so this was very clear from the Ahadith. Continuing with the general traits that we covered. The last time that we met, I think we this is where we've reached. We saw some ahadith from Prophet Isa salam and others as well. Sermon 108 from Nahj al-Balagha. Prophet Isa, in a longer hadith, he was talking to the scholars of Bani Israel. It was a warning to them that they need to act a lot more, to be a lot more sincere. It's not enough to just carry the knowledge. They have to act based on the knowledge and so on and so forth. And then Sermon 108, there was a description from Imam Ali salam about the Holy Prophet And he was, how he was like a roaming physician, if you'll remember. How the Holy Prophet is like a doctor. But instead of people going to him, he's the one who is constantly seeking who is ill, who is sick, and he goes, if you'll remember the description of Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says his tools are always ready. And he knows how to put the remedy on the illness directly. So of course, this is a beautiful description of the Holy Prophet. Amazing description of the Holy Prophet But it means that this is how we have to be. Once you start carrying the knowledge, people are not always going to be coming to you. You have to go out of your way to get it to them. Look for the illnesses. Do you have in your toolkit, in your remedies, do you have something that can work on that illness, on this disease? It's time to go to work, to put it into action, if you're following in the footsteps of the Holy Prophet. And of course, we said we will see other ahadith that say, you're not always sharing all your knowledge with everyone. This is going to be degrading to yourself and to the knowledge. Not all knowledge needs to be shared with all people all the time. There are exceptions. But the general rule is, somehow you are sharing your knowledge. And a lot of the considerations that perhaps come to our minds, in fact, if you think about them more carefully, you'll see they go back to ego. And this is a perfect hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, about how the Holy Prophet has no ego. Many of us will say, you know, when I think about I carry a certain amount of knowledge, well, if someone is interested in my knowledge, they should come to me. I can't lower myself and go and tell. People will not really give value and worth to that knowledge that I'm cheaply giving to them. They're going to give a lot more 
weight and value and worth to that knowledge if they're paying hundreds or thousands of dollars for it. If they get it for free, no one cares. So maybe I shouldn't degrade myself and go bring that knowledge that way. That's a very way, very easy way of thinking. Very logical, very normal, very worldly. But if this is correct, imagine what would the Holy Prophet say. Imam Ali says, Tabibun Dawar. He's a physician who roams around. No ego. No one is coming to him. He's the one who goes seeking out people. Who needs this knowledge? And then he uses his tools in the right way. On the right injury and on the right illness. Always ready. And then we started talking the last time we met. And we ended with this. We were talking about some of the purposes of knowledge. So a lot of this in certain ways, some of this or a lot of this is a refresher or a reminder of things we mentioned before quickly, even though that was not the purpose, but we mentioned some of these. One of them is that knowledge, the purpose that it plays, the role that knowledge plays is what? Is that it gives you a map, Imam Ali salam said. Knowledge gives you the map, but then you have to actually walk on that path. It shows you the way. And what's going to allow you to walk on that path? Imam Ali salam said, zuhd. It's action, but you have to be detached from the world. There's a lot of distractions on the way. Knowledge will show you the way, but it won't make you act. You need to start now acting on that knowledge. And the more detachment you have, the easier the road is going to be. If you're not detached, if you're too attached to the world and what it presents, you're going to stumble every every step of that way. We saw other hadith that say, and this is inshallah very clear from the whole theme and why we build the series this way until now, that knowledge must lead to action. And we saw all the ahadith, a few of the ahadith as a reminder around this. And we stopped with, knowledge must also lead to sincerity. And so this is where we're at right now. We're continuing with this, inshallah, we continue to build on it. So let's at least present a few, a few more uh, passages, inshallah, today. The first one, to continue with all of this, and the characteristics of the scholar, aligned with or extension from sincerity is specifically fear of God and spirituality. So Imam Sadiq says, Al-Khashyatu Mirathu Al-Ilm. Fear, because it's a technical term and Muslims in general know what it means, you see that they don't add, the Imams don't usually add Al-Khashya is from what? As a religious person, you're not just fearful. They don't want you to be someone who's afraid of everything. You're fearful of God, of the punishment of God, of the anger of God, of displeasing God. So when he says Al-Khashya, fear, he's talking about fear of God. Mirathul ilm This is what you inherit from knowledge. So one way to know what knowledge is, is to know how much fear of God it generates in your heart. We've been talking since the beginning of the series about how knowledge is not about an accumulation of data, of information. So how do I know? We keep saying it needs to show in your conduct and in your actions. Okay, so what motivates you to act? Human beings need a trigger, a driver. One of the best, there's two things, only two. This is how human beings are built. 
The same two we talked about, the balance. Khawf, Raja. The carrot and the stick. What motivates you? Jannah, Nar. The Holy Quran is built that way. And then of course, there are those exceptional human beings who can go beyond. There are those who claim that they can go beyond and then there are those who can go beyond. That I worship you because you are worthy of being worshipped. But the majority, the crushing majority of human beings, they need hell and heaven. So God created hell and heaven because He created us and He knows how we're wired. Khawf, Raja. You have hope for something, so it triggers you to act. Why do you do anything that you do? You're hoping to attain something. Why do you do anything you do? Because you're afraid of something. Those are the two triggers of human beings. Basic, biological, chemical, physical level of the human being. Okay? So, the Imam here, he says, Al-Khashyatu Mirathul Ilm. One of the things you inherit from true knowledge is fear. Fear of God. If you have fear of God, you're going to act. It's going to lead to action. And we're going to see a lot of examples. This is a whole constellation, a whole network of, of notions in Islam that are attached here. Of taqwa, khashya, zuhd, all of them related to knowledge and belief. Okay, So we're always looking at different angles. So the imam begins by saying, fear of God is what you, is what you inherit from knowledge. وَالْعِلْمِ شِعَاعُ الْمَعْرِفَةِ And knowledge, and this is one is impossible to translate. الْمَعْرِفَةِ, we should translate it as knowledge. Right? And ilm is also knowledge. He says knowledge is a ray of knowledge. Because there are no two different words in English for to distinguish between ilm and ma'rifah. Technically, when the imams talk about ma'rifah, this is a whole topic, inshallah one day we get a lot more into it. In our religion, when you see ma'rifah, they're not really talking about knowledge. Not knowledge in the intellectual way. That's not the meaning of ma'rifah. Ma'rifah is a knowledge of the heart. It's a spiritual type of knowledge. It's a knowledge that affects you internally. So those, for instance, of you who have heard of a field, for instance, called Irfan, which comes from the word Ma'rifah or Arafah, is what? Is the field that is entirely based on knowledge of God. That's it. Sometimes it's translated as mysticism or gnosis. Who are the Gnostics? They're the people who try, scholars, Sufis, whatever you want to call them, who try to live their entire life based on the notion that the only thing worthy of being known is God. Everything they talk about, everything they do, how, how they see the world is from that main principle. We're not saying it's right or wrong, that's, that's a whole discussion on its own. We're saying where does it come from? Where did it get sparked from? It's the idea of ma'rifah. It's arfan. The whole field is called arfan. So the idea that there are types of knowledge that are much more internal and spiritual and of the heart. This is ma'rifah. Knowledge as an ilm, ilm can be information. And it includes all of that. 
But it also includes the rest. It includes the spiritual, but it includes the rest. We've been using it in the most generic way, in the most general way. Here the Imam now is making that distinction. He says the knowledge, the information that you have, everything you call knowledge in this world, al-ilm, shi'a'ul ma'rifah. It's a ray. It's a reflection of ma'rifah. Okay, so this brings you back to true knowledge. The knowledge that you have is a reflection of the knowledge to know God, to truly know God, to have spiritual knowledge. The knowledge that you have is just a reflection of that, a ray of that. وَقَلْبُ iman, And that is the heart of faith. المعرفه, the true knowledge. That is the heart of faith. Heart of belief. So knowledge is important or no? Very important. It's the heart of belief. So long as it is coming from it brings you back to spiritual knowledge. Knowledge of the heart, which is not necessarily knowledge you can express with words. You just know based on your worldview, based on your understanding of God, based on who you are as an, as an entity in this world, you feel a relationship with God. That's not something you teach with words. You can read volumes upon volumes of this and it may not affect, and you may hear a single verse for the first time in your life from the Qur'an and it affects you. What's happening here? This is the difference between the ilm and the ma'rifah. Then the imam continues. He says, وَمَنْ حُرِمَ الْخَشْيَةِ لَا يَكُونُ عَالِمًا وَإِنْ شَقَّ الشَّعْرَ فِي مُتَشَابَهَاتِ الْعِلْمِ And the one who has been prevented, the one who has been deprived of khashiyah, of the fear of God, لا يكون عالمة. He will never be a scholar in the meaning of being a scholar in the eyes of God. A true scholar of Islam in the Quranic sense, in the sense of Ahl al-Bayt. He will never be a scholar, even if he does what? Notice the expression of the Imam. He says, وَإِن شَقَّ الشَّعْرَ فِي مُتَشَابَهَاتِ الْعِلْمِ Even if he is able to split the hair in the most difficult في متشابهات العلم in the most difficult problems of knowledge knowledge has problems if they are very technical you need someone who understands the notions laser mind who is able to split the hair to take a hair how thin is a hair in width it's nothing you can barely see it the Imam says, if he has that level of nuance, that level of precision and accuracy in his knowledge, that he's able to split the hair in the most difficult of the problems of knowledge, this is what type of scholar, heavyweight he is, but he has no fear of God. The Imam says, لا يكون عالم. He's not a scholar. He can never be a scholar, even if he splits the hair in the most difficult of the problems of knowledge. And so here, this is the way of Ahl al-Bayt. They explain it to you. A lot of people will say, amazing, the words of the Imams are light. They're self-evident. And some people want to argue and say, who says? I can come up with an example. I can come up with an exception. So the Imams right away, 
they back up everything they say with the Quran. Right away the Imam says, Qala Allah, the proof of what I said is what God says in the Quran, Innama Yakshallah min ulama. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, Truly, it is the scholars from among his servants or the ones who are knowledgeable among his servants who fear God. Therefore, if you do not fear God, can you be a scholar? The Imam says, I don't say. The Quran says, if you have fear of God, then you have knowledge. To the extent that you have fear of God, you are knowledgeable. And the part where there is no fear of God, that's not called knowledge, not according to the Quran. The Quran puts, puts it in a mathematical equation. And the Imam simply refers to it. He says it doesn't matter if he splits the hair. How much fear of God is in his heart? How much fear of God is generated from that knowledge? And so initially, the imam began what he was saying by saying, this is what you need to inherit from knowledge. It needs to lead to some fear of God. You have to have a better relationship with God when you're learning. It doesn't matter what you're learning. And that's why we said you may sit in a lesson of, you know, akhlaq or arfan, and they teach you spiritual discipline. And this is how you get closer to God. Beautiful. If this is what it's leading to, and you become closer to God, that's perfect. That's what we want. You may listen to a lecture of fiqh that teaches you how to perform your wudu and how to perform your sujood or your ruku' and your prayer. And you may say, Oh God, I want to worship you like you want to be worshipped. I feel closer to you. Now I know how you want me to perform my wudu. I know it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I go walk around rocks in the middle of nowhere. Today it's not the middle of nowhere. But for the longest time, a bunch of rocks in the middle of nowhere that we call Kaaba. But that's the Hajj. For millennia, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants humanity to go there and walk around them seven times. Seems very random. But suddenly it acquires a completely different significance when you say, no, I perform this because I know this is what you want from me. You want me to do this? I'll do it. Tell me exactly how you want me to do it. I want to do it like you want. Of course you feel close, closer to God. So you study fiqh, and this brings you closer to God. Beautiful. What if you're not studying religious sciences? Well, I would argue that the person sitting in a class of biology learning about how the cell functions and they think about how great is God that he put all of this universe in a tiny cell and there are X billion of them in my body functioning all the time, allowing me to live. How great is this God? Of course I feel closer to God. Or I study light, or I study chemistry, or I study geology, or cosmology. And this leads me to have a better relationship with God. That's spiritual. So all of this is ma'rifah. So again, coming back to since the beginning, this is what we've been talking about. What effect does it have on you? If it brings you closer to God, Imam Sadiq says, this is knowledge. And you are a scholar. To the extent that you have fear of God as a result of this knowledge. So it's not limited to a specific type. Any type of knowledge that brings you closer to God is now a sacred knowledge that leads to 
خشية. And now you are falling under this verse of the Quran that says إنما يخشى الله من عباده العلماء. You are a alim. You are of the ulama because you have khashiyah. Okay? And then the imam continues in a completely different topic in the rest of his hadith. We'll cover it quickly. We could spend a very long time on this and maybe I'll stop after this. The imam says, Now, the imam is going to start explaining to us the illnesses, the problems of the scholars. The moment you start acquiring knowledge, it comes with a whole bunch of things. It comes with duties and responsibilities. It comes with very positive benefits and rewards, the multiplication of everything you do. Everything that you used to do that you were rewarded with one reward, one hasana now suddenly becomes ten hasanat or a hundred or a thousand or a million, depending on how much knowledge you have. And we're going to see all of that, inshallah. Amazing rewards, multiplication, amplification of your rewards. Because you're now a alim. You're not blindly performing your deeds and your rituals and your religion. And at the same time, it comes with a lot of problems. Yes, it comes with duties and responsibilities. And it comes with illnesses. This is how the human being is built. This is how we're wired. Just like today you have no money. Tomorrow you have a whole bunch of money and people say it's going to come with problems. You have children, they're going to come with problems. Right? That's part of it. Because this is the reality of this world. This is part of the philosophy of this world. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not create a pure happiness in this world, nor a pure torture in this world. No matter what you look at, you're going to see that it's relative. You want the pure? Afterlife. The pure version of the good, you get a glimpse of it in this world. You get a taste of it in this world so that you desire it in the afterlife. And the same thing on the other side. You get a glimpse of the harms, of the punishment, of the anger of God in this world. You get a glimpse of what pain is, of what sadness and sorrow and regret and shame are in this world. You get a glimpse. All the ruwayat say this. They say the true existence of things the true reality of anything you could think of, anything you have in this world, their true reality is in the afterlife. The Holy Quran says this. The life is in the afterlife. Not in this world. This life, in this life, there is no life. What you call life, this is not really living. True living, true life is in the afterlife. And this applies to everything. Okay, anyways. So the Imam here, he says... So he explained, right? He said, the knowledge, all knowledge is actually a reflection of ma'rifah. That's the real thing we're going after. And knowledge is something you inherit. No, and, and uh, the fear of God is something you inherit from knowledge. That's what we established. And even if someone is splitting the most complicated problems, splitting the hair in those problems... They are not a true knowledgeable person. They are not a true scholar unless they have fear of God. And now the Imam says, and there are illnesses that are sometimes associated with scholars, of being a scholar. And he's going to list a few of them. What are the illnesses? And now we don't have time to explain the psychology behind this. 
Okay, but there's there are clear psychological reasons for each one of these. What are the illnesses? So this becomes a warning for us. As my level of knowledge increases, I should be careful so that I don't fall into these illnesses. The Imam is basically telling us, now that you know all of this about knowledge, here are the pitfalls. Here are the mines. Here's where the alligators and the crocodiles are. Watch out. First one, وَآفَةُ الْعُلَمَاءِ They have greed. Greed cannot, is not necessarily about money and possessions. And we saw good examples. Sometimes the greed is about knowledge itself. They won't share it. Right? And we saw the examples. وَآفَةُ الْعُلَمَاءِ the Imam says, They want to show off. They want to show how much they know. They want to show that they are a genius. They are different. They're not your run-of-the-mill scholar. No, they're different. They're exceptional. The superficial way of understanding Asabiyah, we're going to say anger. Asabiyah is not anger in Arabic. We refer to it that way, we use it that way, and it can be used that way. Asabiyah is more extremism. It's blind rage. When you're blinded by your emotions towards something. One meaning of asabiyah can be, for instance, if you go back and you want to be very eloquent in Arabic, you can define, for instance, or use this term for, for racism. Someone who's racist, they have asabiyah. That's how the word is used in Arabic. They have something that blinds them. They are extreme in an interpretation of something and they become blind to the rest. They become close-minded to the rest. They refuse anything else to the point where it may become a jahiliyyah, as the Holy Quran says. Okay? So, wal-asabiyyah. Because you, you become so invested in the knowledge that you have, so immersed in the knowledge that you refuse to accept any other point of view, right? That's what the Imam is talking about. We don't have time to, to explain all of these, but we're, as we said, there's a lot of psychology behind each one of these. Why is it that when you carry knowledge, then you are now exposing yourself to these types of pitfalls? Therefore, be careful. Okay? They love praise. They want to be complimented. They want people to talk about them and say how great they are and how much knowledge they have and how much you know, they can flatter them and praise them one of the pitfalls, one of the illnesses of the scholars is that they start to talk about that that which is which it's truth they have not reached they don't know something fully they haven't reached the end of something, the truth of something. They haven't reached it yet, but they want to talk about it. They're not, basically, the Imam is saying, intellectually, they're impatient. Right? Because it takes time to get to the bottom of things sometimes. Next. وَالتَّكَلُّفْ فِي تَزْيِينِ الْكَلَامِ بِزَوَائِدِ الْأَلْفَاضِ And so these scholars, the Imam says, they pretend or they go out of their way to ornament their speech with superfluous words, with words that are not necessary. They add things to their speech. Why? So that you sound smarter. So that you 
sound more comprehensive in your knowledge. You sound like a genius. So this becomes a problem. The Imam is saying this is an illness. By the way, in Arabic, this is the opposite of balagha, right? Balagha is about how few words you can use to give the full meaning. This is, this is the strength. The more you study that, the more you understand the genius of the Qur'an or the genius of Nahj al-Balagha. How much meaning is contained in how few words. And that's why there's so much meaning. The more you dig, the more you study, the more you examine, the more you find. You just need to think about it. Right? And this is, by the way, a lot of ways, this is how poetry is assessed, for instance. One of the ways you assess poetry in Arabic. See how much meaning is contained in the words. Okay, so the Imam here is saying one of the pitfalls, one of the clear mistakes, one of the illnesses of scholarship is the use of superfluous words, too many words, to ornament the speech, to decorate the speech with words that are not necessary. They are shameless before God. They lack shame before God. And this is, by the way, sometimes psychologically, this is also very easy to explain. When you spend a lot of time and you're not coming into religion with the right attitude, that you're looking at things from a spiritual perspective, you remind yourself of the spiritual perspective. If you and I, when we look at a ruwaya, this is the first time that you encounter the ruwaya. The first time someone explains to you the real meaning of an ayah, a verse of the Qur'an, it's going to hit you and it's going to shock you. What if you've heard it three times before? What if you've heard it ten times? What if you've heard it a hundred times? What if you've heard it a thousand times? Will the verse still have an impact? Will the ruwayah still have an impact? Will du'a kumail still have an impact? It's supposed to. If you approach it from a spiritual perspective, the more you look at it, as we said, the more meaning comes out, the more effect it has on you. If you look at it as a dead piece of information, a static piece of information, like we, we read the newspaper or how you would read a novel, of course, the first time you read it, you got it. Why would you read it a second time? There's no point reading it a second time. But our religion is based on the opposite. That's why you have to pray five times a day. You have to keep repeating the same thing. God is saying there is a benefit in this repetition. You're not supposed to become desensitized. The problem is a lot of people fall in the desensitized mode. And the worst of them are who? They're going to be the scholars. Because you and I are exposed to this once in a lifetime, once in a blue moon, once in a year. They're exposed to this all year. It no longer affects them. It no longer shocks them. How many times can the same piece of information shock you? If you approach it with the right attitude, it will every time. A new meaning will come out. A new application, a new example, a new link with what's going on in your life will come out. But if you approach it like something that's dead and static, it won't have any effect. And so the worst of the worst are going to be the ones who are in it all year. All the time. For multiple years. 10, 20, 30, 50, 70 years. 
Right? So the Imam says, And they lack shame before God. There are things that, this is why the a lot of the people when a lot of our scholars who have to go on the pulpit and who have to give lectures and sermons and they constantly have to think, how do I present information in a new way, in a creative way, so that it can still affect people, shock people. They're not sitting there with the right attitude spiritually how this is going to affect me. You know, I'm going to sit here and entertain me. Present me something I've never heard. Well, it's all in the Quran. If you've read the Quran a few times, it's already there. History is limited. The hadith of Ahl al-Bayt are well known. No, I have to go out of my way now to present something in a different way, in a creative way, so that I can entertain you. It's not entertainment. It's supposed to affect you spiritually, and this comes from you more than it comes from me. It's an attitude. But in any case, the Imam says, وَقِلَّةُ الْحَيَاءِ مِنَ اللَّهِ وَالْإِفْتِخَارِ وَتَرْكُ الْعَمَلِ بِمَا عَلِمُوا The last two illnesses of scholarship are al-iftikhar, so flaunting, pride and flaunting. I proudly flaunt my knowledge. I want to show that my knowledge is more than yours, greater, more delicate, more precise, more accurate, more in quantity, more in quality, and I've, I'm going to find a way to flaunt it. And And that's the worst of them. And not acting based on what they know. He kept the worse for last. That from all the knowledge they have, they don't act based on the knowledge that they have. So inshallah, let's stop here. It's going to get too late after this. Inshallah, we continue next time we meet with the other characteristics of the scholars. وَصَلَى عَلَى سَيِّدِنَا مُحَمَّدٍ وَعَلَى آلِهِ الطَّيِّبِينَ الطَّاهِرِينَ So maybe five, five, ten minutes tops of questions, and then we wrap it up. It's not too, uh, too late. Comments, questions, concerns, tafadlu. Um, so just a clarification: Is ma'arifa a type of knowledge that gives you fear? Could we describe it in that way? Yeah. So ma'arifa is more of a spiritual, divine, spiritual type of knowledge, or a knowledge of the heart spiritual knowledge and automatically it's going to generate fear the distinction that imam is making here is saying that there is also something we refer to as ilm so what are ilm and ma'rifah well there is a link between them is that ilm is basically all of it but if ilm does not generate khashya then this is not ilm or certainly not. it's it's ilm in your and my way of using ilm but not true ilm, not ilm in the Quranic sense. Okay? So that's why the Imam is saying, unless you have the ilm that is coming from ma'rifah, then that is not real ilm, no matter how much of it you have, no matter how accurate it is. Okay? So with ma'rifah, you can't go wrong. If you go back to the narrations, if you go back to the times when ma'rifah is mentioned, there is no good and bad ma'rifah. There is no someone who has ma'rifah and who is bad, who is evil. Who, who does wrong with it. Ma'rifah is automatic. It's a knowledge of the heart. Knowledge, ilm, knowledge is a knowledge of the mind. There's a layer between the mind and the heart. You may know something, it doesn't mean you're going to act on it. 
Iblis knew. He knew everything. He not only lived with the angels, he taught them. Imam Ali السلام, says, for thousands of years, he taught the angels. Iblis did not lack knowledge. And yet he still committed the sin. He still disobeyed God directly. Allah says, do this. He says, no, I won't do this. That's it. So ilm can be good and bad. Ilm may lead to nothing. It may be useless. Or you can use it to do something bad with it. Because ilm is of the mind. And what matters is the heart. Once it's in the heart, this is ma'rifah. Ma'rifah is automatic. If you have ma'rifah, then it comes with knowledge of God. You know God. That's why in a lot of cases they say ma'rifah ay ma'rifatullah. You have knowledge of God, then you have everything. So of course it includes fear of God. Ilm, not necessarily. It could be good, it could be bad. Unless you're using it in the Quranic sense. When he says the true scholars are the ones who fear God. Now he's really referring to ma'rifah. Because the Quran is using ilm. Right? So that's why we're saying ilm is very broad. Depending on how you use it, how you qualify it. And we had questions about qualifying the knowledge earlier in the series. Why would the Imam say alim? Not only alim. Alim Rabbani. He qualifies it so that because it's very broad. So he makes sure that we're talking about this type of knowledge. This type of scholar. The one who carries this type of knowledge. Because if he doesn't, it's open. Inshallah, this is clear. Tafallah. Um, so, I'm just trying to classify them. So there's the Quranic knowledge and knowledge, um, which really is a knowledge. If it's not leading to, in the Quranic uh, definition. So, um, I'm assuming, like, if it's, if it's not the Quranic knowledge, let's call it, we can call it data. And then what you do with that data makes it knowledge or not, or still data. It's pretty much. If you want to really like the guy, because like for calling the knowledge of knowledge, like it's getting, but like I guess you can call Quran knowledge and regular knowledge or data, and then what, what that produces or what that does, if it leads to matter or not, is the is the benefactor that that solves the issue of um, taking your knowledge from somebody that doesn't have matter for you're you're taking data basically, and then you're transforming that into knowledge. Yeah, so that's an excellent way of putting it. Um, so in Arabic, it includes all of them. So you have to qualify it when you want to be precise. And you and I, in the majority of cases, what do we have access to? We have access to the data. We can't really tell what's going on in someone's heart. So I can't really tell if this is ma'rifah or not. The person might have a, themselves, because you have a direct experience of it, you may have an idea of this is ma'rifah or not. Or we can look at the external behavior of the person and, and analyze, but we'll never know what's going on in the heart. Right? But knowledge you can tell. You can hear the words, you can hear the speech, you can read the book and say, yeah, this person has data. right? And so that's a whole gradation, by the way. What's the difference between data and information and knowledge? And here, you know, in, in modern science and knowledge societies, they say data is just the raw pieces of information. They become information when you make them, when you make the data make sense. When the data tells a story. Okay, so now you know the story. Now you have information. Now what? Oh, you can take it one more level and you call it knowledge. If it leads to action. If it leads to something that you can do with that knowledge, now we're talking about knowledge. Otherwise, it's information. And if it doesn't even tell a story, they're just numbers, that's data. That's why you can look at a spreadsheet and there's just listing of numbers. That's not information. That's just data, right? 
But Islamically speaking, yes. So we can say there is, that's, I, I refer to it as like static or, or dead or data or just information. Right? If you want to take it to the next level and do something with it, it has to affect your heart. And that's what we called transformational or we said it's, it leads to action. If it leads to action, it affected your heart. Therefore, it is ma'rifah. It is a form of ma'rifah. Make sense? Yeah, that, that was my favorite thing is the dead knowledge. You can call it like that. You bring it to life with the ma'rifah that you give to it. As the Imam said. So we want to be smart and say we came up with the, right? What the Imam said. Remember the, when he described those who have knowledge, but he said this, is, this person is actually the dead of the living. He's alive biologically, but he's dead. His heart is dead, or his mind is dead. Okay. Going back to the first thing, to see if the relationship between ilm and ma'rifah, because it says uh, ilm is a ray of ma'rifah, so it's as if ilm is coming from ma'rifah. I'm just confused about that wording. So in this world, everything is a ray of something greater, purer. So everything we have in this world, data and information... We call that what? We call that ilm. That ilm, when it is true, it is a ray of ma'rifah. We don't have access to the full ma'rifah. None of us can claim that we, we are a arif, right? But the true knowledge, when it is true knowledge, it's an indication that this is a ray, this is coming from, it's like there is a sun and there are rays coming out of it. One of them is knowledge. So now I had access to ma'rifah through this knowledge. Okay? Okay. Inshallah we continue next time. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi tayyibin al-tahirin.